everybody. It's Tommy Canelli, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. He's a film director, producer, writer, visual artist, and author. His films have been screened at every major film festival around the world. He's a beautiful storyteller, my co-host, and our podcast docu-series, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash, and the Making of Bitter Tears. My Fratello, who I have much respect and admiration for, please welcome back to the show, Antonino D'Ambrosio. Fratello, welcome back. Great to be with you, Fratello, and what a beautiful introduction. I'm so honored and humbled to, to you know, by your words, and but to be with you again. I'm so, I'm so thrilled. It is. I am excited and looking forward to having you back on the show. We're going to get into Roberta, which is the big project you have, but there's some things we didn't talk about in the first show. And where I want to start is a part of your beautiful resume that I don't think gets enough credit, and that's you as a visual artist. In 2003, you did This Is A Movement. In 2008, No Free Lunch starring Louis Black, which received the notice of culture distinction in Vanity Fair. And then in 2009, Vanity Fair, A Furious Heartbeat. I want you to talk about what it means to you to be a visual artist, because I think that's a big component of who you are. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, that you, you're bringing that part of, of my work to the to light here. And it is a big part of who I am. In some ways, it's the biggest part uh, because so much of how I see the world is, it's not necessarily visual, but it's these kind of fragmented ways that I, I I think this is how we all live. You know, it's, you know, life is not a a straight line. You know, We, we get these bits and pieces of, moments that live together that become our life's journey and i'm able to really replicate that in a much freer way through my visual arts my, my visual artwork and um you know because I'm, I'm less constrained and restricted by various things that i have to do let's say when i write my books or make my feature films and that's exciting and i'm so glad you picked up on it because you picked up you know you highlighted three of of my early pieces but they were also pretty big works you know mm-hmm. particularly no free lunch and i worked with and collaborated with comedian and actor lewis black and you know there's just an element of doing that work that also brings allows me to bring all of myself to it um just not my experiences but my curiosity my you know my awareness my experiences um but my my different loves and interests of other art forms that can kind of really fill in the box of visual art artwork in. And that's, it's really exciting for me. I think it's a great component of, like I said, of who you are in your resume listeners. I would highly recommend you search and try to find some of these and give them, put your eyes on them. I chose these three just because of a, it seems to me that in your previous work, all that you've done, you deal with many types of movements that have happened in our country and they seem to resonate with you for one reason or another. This visual art is pretty much put brings that to perspective, but also your films. And I, I want to get your opinion on why does certain movements resonate with you? So it's interesting. You know, there's, there's a visual art project that I did 
that I think can help really answer this question, which is a great question, Tommy, really great question. And I don't think everyone's ever asked me something like this before in, in the hundreds, if not thousands of interviews I've done now, which I appreciate. So I was a artist in residence at the Contemporary Art, Art Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, 2000, I think 2009, 2010. And it was this amazing experience where I worked with the indigenous community there, of course, many artists in, in Santa Fe. And I, I was really doing a lot of the visual arts was framed around a lot of like the environment and using the natural landscape to, to build films and tell these stories. And I did a project called In Sun and Shadow, and it was done in in, in collaboration with Native youth who were some who were incarcerated and some who were, you know, uh, in in kind of uh, juvenile detention centers. And those projects, which still remain some of the most rewarding experiences that I I've had as as a as a filmmaker or as an artist, you know, is really centered around this idea that I think is the bedrock of my work, which is about creative response, you know, which is centered on really finding connection and solidarity with people. And those are the movements I'm most interested in. And those interests, those movements that interest me, you know, usually spring from some kind of artistic endeavor, you know, that is, I think, a great and powerful metaphor for creating and not destroying. You know, I think that what I'm, why I'm always drawn to particular movements and, you know, call my work creative response and, you know, found this great joy in doing the work of, of, of visual arts is that I get to constantly reinforce and underscore and live and manifest this idea of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. And I think that's what art is about. You know, art is about reaffirming our shared common humanity. And, you know, it's exciting that you found these, that you found these projects and it's still the projects that, you know, and I do, I have to say, Tommy, I do sneak this, that stuff into all my feature films, you know, but it's, you know, it is different when I'm able to just completely sit there in Santa Fe, New Mexico, working on all this, this, this magnificent, in this magnificent landscape through this, you know, through that center of contemporary arts and be able to really, you know, dream out loud you know, in this kaleidoscopic way, you know, it's just like full of color and, and diversity and vibrancy. And I'm talking about, of ideas, you know, about living in the world. And that's what excites me the most about that. 2012, let Fury have the hour. Joe Strummer, punk and the movement that shook the world. Official selection of the Tribeca Film Festival. It received support from the Democracy Alliance and Rob McKay of McKay Foundation that funds activities that build civil society's energy, leadership, and resources. Mm -hmm. What did this project mean to you personally? Well, you know, this is pro that project was probably it's interesting as it's like the first record of a of a band. You know, it's like you pour everything into this because. And I probably haven't lost this 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 approach, you know, in terms of ambition and desire, where you always think this may be my last project. The first project may be my last, you know, the second might be my. So with that project, I just, you know, it took me so long to make it, Tommy, you know, about 
oh man, over over five years, maybe seven years in total to make it. It started out as a book that had done quite well with these ideas about punk rock and politics and art and culture. And um, but so much of it was being able to tell my my unique story or my story that was unique to me, I should say, of being a child of Italian immigrants growing up in a working class uh, section of Philadelphia and then Southern Jersey, New Jersey, and how I discovered that what initially felt like a very narrow and small place to be the world, that would I ever get off my block? Is this all that's ever gonna, I'm ever going to have? When I discovered at the same time, punk rock, hip hop, street art, and skateboarding, you know, these allowed me to really kind of in these four distinct ways start to see that the world was much bigger than my block and that I could find a place in it and even have a voice in it. So, I, you know, the film is really, you know, I, I did, I pushed so many traditional conventions out the window making that film to tell a story that, you know, for example, it has 45 songs in it. It has uh, over, I think, 40 interviews that appear throughout. <laughs> it has, I think, 1,200 pieces of archival <laughs> material. So, I, you know, I just went really, you know, we, when I was making, I remember telling everyone, the team, because we had to really, truly bootstrap the film. And luckily, we had people like Rob McKay come in and, and, and really help us finish it. Because we had like almost, I mean, it was a micro budget that we had to to really go for the jugular. That's it. There was like no half measures of making the film. And then the film did incredibly well. I mean, it played over, you know, played all around the world. It, it, it got a theatrical release and played at over 100 film festivals, you know, and it helped launch my career. You know, and it was a lesson too, Tommy, because it's a lesson that you can't play it safe. You know, so much is like this rhetoric, you know, to take a chance and, you know, and, you know, and it becomes like almost like a myth, you know, you know, you you roll the dice, you take a risk, you take a chance, you know, but the reality is that does really pay off in the long run, Mm -hmm. you know, and because what it for what what it forces you to do is live completely with an open heart when you're making the work, you know, you just have to be completely open to everything that's happening and let it kind of flow through you because then you have to be, then you're free of these restrictions and constrictions because you're just like, I'm going to go for it. That's it. You know, completely. Listeners, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can get your hands on the book or take a look at the film. Something else I'm going to put a link in the show notes is we recorded a podcast docu-series in support of Native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community. It is called A Heartbeat in the Guitar, Johnny Cash, and the Making of Bitter Tears. Listeners, go to the link, listen to the entire docu-series. We're not going to get into it. The only question I want to ask you, Antonino, about this is simply this. Tell me what it was like for you visiting Johnny Cash's recording studio in Tennessee. You know, it's hard. It's it's hard to not feel like you're, you're visiting... You're visiting some kind of monument or shrine when you go to a place like that. Uh, 
uh, the fact that I that I was able to go there and be part of it, and that we recorded a song in the studio and a couple of them for the for the film, and then what became the the companion record to the film, uh, it, it it was humbling. It was really humbling. You know what's interesting about that studio, Tommy, is that you know Johnny Cash did so many things on his own terms throughout his own career. And sometimes for better or for worse, you know, with some of the struggles that he had with drugs and other things like that. But, you know, and much like what we'll, and we'll get into when we talk about Roberta is that he he was completely always um, dedicated to the beauty of his own dreams. And the reason I say that in terms of the recording studio is that it was just like, I'm just going to, I want to be able to create anytime, anywhere. I don't want to have to go to Nashville. I don't want to have to go to New York or L.A., I want to be able to go somewhere right here where I live and just make records and make music. And I want to do it <laughs> in like conditions that reminded, you know, for him, that reminded him perhaps of his time, you know, living in Arkansas when he was, you know, desperately poor and, and, and his family were, you know, farming and sharecropping. What was also interesting about it is that Johnny Cash had that ability to always reimagine himself. And so, you know, he ended up using, he ended up asking Rick Rubin, or maybe it was Rick Rubin's idea, the producer Rick Rubin, to come down there and record what became the American Recordings. I think it's four records now, which plenty with plenty of more material, uh, which which was a a, a a collaboration between Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin to record songs written by other artists. So Elvis Costello, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, you know, goes on and on. I mean, it goes on, Leonard Cohen, it goes on and on and on. And these works became distinctive in their own right. You know, for example, Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt, that he recovered. People really think it's Johnny Cash's song now. Leonard Cohen's Burr on the Wire, Johnny Cash's rendition is, 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 is acclaimed. Joe Strummer actually recorded with with uh, with Johnny, you know, with Johnny Cash in L.A. at one period, at one point in time, and had submitted songs for Joe, for Johnny Cash to record at this recording studio. Now, the thing that I, the reason I bring that up and why it was so amazing to be there is that you know it had all the technology in it, but it was very simple. So those records that he made also reflect that they're very they're unadorned, they're stripped down. You know, it's it's the instrumentation is is somewhat sparse. And, you know, he was he was ill. He was older and his voice was rougher. So he had this kind of other edge to the music mm-hmm. that really when you walk into the space and in the film that, that I made, uh, we're still here. You know, we see some of the musicians there performing and you can see that the interviews that we did some of them on the on on the on the deck there that leads into the to the studio. It's just that he kind of went back to the beginning. And so when you go there, you think that, you know, you're at the start of Johnny Cash's career and at the start of this music that became kind of fundamental and, you know, that helped change music. And that, to me, is a reminder of what great art is, which, again, we'll talk about with Roberta, Mm -hmm. is that it's so much about the present and the future and not the past. Beautiful. This was beautiful. It's a long answer to because of the experience, you know, we we really soaked it up while we were there. 
we were there for hours, obviously. Well, days, but you know, so. This is probably more a little lighthearted. 2017, yes. Frank Serpico, <laughs> released by the IFC Film Sundance Selects. Believe it, it's still on demand somewhere out there. Frank tells the story of his events for a police reform in the NYPD in the early 1970s. Al Pacino earned a lead actor Oscar nomination playing Frank in the 1973 film Serpico. Antonino, what was it like working with Frank and how receptive was he? Well, (laughs) you know, it's interesting to have done all these projects and worked with all these different artists from Public Enemy to Tom Morello, Raising Against the Machine, and, you know, it goes on and on. Eve Ensler, playwright. But Frank does stand alone. I mean, he's completely, he stands completely alone. Uh, He was receptive, you know, as he possibly could be because, uh, you know, there had been attempts to make a film like this. Well, not, you know, not the film that I made, but a documentary like that for decades. And the Weinsteins had aggressively, uh, uh, you know, courted Frank about making this film, a film like this. And he said no. So on that count, there was always a tension because, you know, with Frank, Frank is very much his own person. He's, you know, in his 80s, he's got his own life. So it's, it can be very intrusive to have a filmmaker around and, and well, a film, a team around following him. I did become quite close to him during the process because a lot of making the film was about hanging, hanging out with him, speaking to him. And, you know, I spent probably hundreds of hours on the phone with him, many, many, many hours and days up, you know, at his, at, at, a, at, a, at a farm that he likes to hang out with, at his, you know, his, property which is this private property he has it's quite beautiful um and the you know again like anything else the 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 reception from him and then with the film was quite humbling the film has continued to do quite well particularly the version that we have on hulu um which is more of a director's cut of the film so it has a little bit more than what was released in theaters but the experience was what was unlike anything I experienced because you're, you are truly in it with him. And it's like less working with a subject and more like you're working with an actor because there's this so much theater that goes into the experience of being with him and how he tells stories, you know, how this, you know, the guy, the, he's still walking around with a bullet in his brain, for example. So is he it's a it's remarkable he's he's remarkable the story's remarkable and it, it is very shakespearean did feel like a little bit like a modern day shakespeare like recounting this story of you know of king richard iii or something but i want to get two guys in a room and just sit back and listen and that's frank serpico <laughs> that's frank serpico and steve earl <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. That's a good one because it is, as you're referring to, Tommy, I work with Steve Earle on the Johnny Cash film. Right. That would be quite a pair. <laughs> we should try for that. We should try for that on this podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I wanted to talk about this because we're in World Cup. Inside the Touchline, soccer stories that change the world. Yeah, we have a, a documentary series that we're that we're working on as you mentioned, called Inside a Touchline, which is a, um, it's a play on a, uh, on, on, on a saying from uh, Albert Camus, the great 
French writer who said that inside the touchline, everything, which, you know, was this idea that everything was possible inside the touchline of the soccer field, because in that game of soccer, you must play as a team to be successful. Unlike any other sport, soccer is dependent on complete teamwork. It doesn't matter what star you have. One star cannot transcend the team and lead you to a World Cup victory. It's just not possible. So it's a beautiful kind of, it's a beautiful metaphor for living in this world, for democracy. So I, I inverted that. So the project did start out as a book initially called Inside the Touchline. And then we, you know, I've, I've worked with this, this great talent and his name is Prez, Anthony Stevens, we call him Prez, who is completely dedicated. He's a Jama- Jamaican-American. He's completely de- de- dedicated to soccer and and what it can do as a way of engaging people, you know, in, in this world as an attainment, as a democratic action, as many things. So we developed a series around him as our host where he travels around the world and he tells these soccer stories, you know, whether it's Barcelona's role in, 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 in trying to create this movement to separate Catalan from Spain. And, you know, it's just fascinating, you know, Obviously, what's happening in Iran right now, for example, where this woman was murdered by the government. And you see that the Iranian soccer team had done fairly well at the World Cup and were able to use it as a platform to engage the country and the world a bit in terms of this issue. So it's it's stories like that. You know, there's just like really fun stories of just meeting some of the greatest soccer players of all time and and getting into how they. Use soccer, someone like Diego Maradona, who's you know has passed away, as as kind of this art form to really express themselves. It's an exciting project, Tommy. It's exciting. Make a difference with free as a tea. Did you know one in five Americans will experience a mental health challenge every year? Free as a tea is giving the gift of good. For every T-shirt purchased. will be donated to the Mental Health Coalition to support mental health resources for the millions of people who need them. Plus, for every purchase, one shirt is donated to someone in need. Free your mind and shop with a cause. Buy one, give one for $45 and learn more about us and our mission at freeasatea.com or click the link in the show notes. Make a difference, one tea at a time. Happy tea time. The new project is really exciting. Roberta about Roberta Flack. You were kind enough to let me view the film. The film begins the clip back in 1968. It's going to be released January 24th on American Masters and at the Palm Springs Film Festival, January 7th and January 10th. My take on the film is this. It's moving. It's colorful in every sense of that word. Every sense of the word colorful. It shines and brings a legacy to the forefront. It's exceptional work, Fratello. Oh, thank you. I'm so humbled by that. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. Where I want to start with this is, how did you decide on Roberta Flack as she kind of moves by her own beat? You could call her a risk taker, but she's full of soul. You know, it's interesting and if you if you'll indulge me a bit, I'll tell the story of how this film came to me. 
you know, in the work that I do, films, I, I usually find the films, you know, it's something that I develop, I create, it's something that appears to me as an idea. This film came to me and it's one of those gifts, you know, because it's, you know, Roberta Flack has a special connection to me because my mother and father, for example, because they were immigrants, they didn't speak, they were from Italy, they didn't speak English. One of their entryways into American culture was through popular music. So, for example, my mother loved the Beatles. My father loved country music. It just was so music was a big part of our lives. And I remember being a young boy, seeing my mother dance and sing to Roberta Flack's music in this quite moving way. You know, even though she didn't really speak English, she connected this because, as you mentioned, there was a there's this soul, there's this soulfulness, there's this power that emanates. And this is what music really does do. It is it is art storing above life. It really is. So I have this memory of, you know, and then I'm working on a project at the time. This is now three years ago on the musician, Ani DeFranco. And through her manager, I met a sound engineer named Tom Similo, who had come to me about another project. And the interim, he was friends with Roberta and her people. And he had said to, he takes me out to lunch and he says to me, do you like Roberta Flack? And I said, I, I love Roberta Flack, of course. I, mean, she, I think she's made some of the greatest music and records of, of our, of, you know, of our time. And he said, well, they're fans of your, of your work. Her people, Roberta and her people, you know, really liked your Frank Serpico film, your Johnny Cash film, and they're interested in developing a project. There's, there's never been a film, uh, with this kind of the depth and the scope and the artistry that they want for Roberta. And they think you might be up to doing this. So I said, sure. So he said that if you agree, there's one condition. You have to meet with Roberta in person, of course. And then they'll tell you what that other condition is when you arrive at Roberta's place. So I go to see Roberta and and one of her managers was there, Joan Martin, who's become a, a friend and, and is really was a big champion in this project. And they had set up all this music, this music that she hadn't listened to, original recordings from 1968, 1970, 72, um, for us to listen to together. The condition was for me to sit with Roberta and listen to music with her. So I, Roberta has me sit next to her. She holds my hand and she starts to sing along to all the music mm. for two hours. Personal concert. Now, exactly. Now, Tommy, if nothing else comes of this project, this has just been absolutely an amazing experience to have one of the great voices of our time sing to me, singing to me. So as I got up to leave, she just turns to me and says, you're the, you're the guy to make the film. And then we were off and running. What it meant for me was, was, what, was, it, was it tell a story of, of what art really does, how it transcends time and space. There is no boundaries. She's from 1940, 1950s, uh, Virginia, segregated, some of the segregated sound, right? Black woman, um, you know, this child of a bricklayer and 
and cafeteria worker immigrants, you know, from Philadelphia, you know, and here we are together connected by what the art and music that she made. And, you know, she's entrusting me to tell this story. And then what really resonated with me about her, and this is, we I mean, were talking about, we're talking about Frank and even Johnny Cash. None of the other subjects or the other films that I made had a person like this. She was so singular in her vision, yet so wide in her curiosity and her interest in in creativity and artistry. It was completely at the highest level of anyone I've ever encountered. She was also so undaunted and relentless in sticking to the vision of the world that she wanted to create and inhabit. Because, you know, she continually had to battle sexism and racism mm. and, you know, and then, you know, her music, you know, we talk about in the film, her music was not considered political enough or it was too soft or it was too, you know, too poppy. But Roberta remained undaunted and, you know, and along the way she was completely her own person, you know, and created this great work. Really resonated with me, you know. Let me ask you something on the tales of that then. Did you learn anything about Roberta that completely made you take be taken back by by putting this film together? Yeah, I mean, well, first, the things that she kind of affirmed or reaffirmed that I believed were still surprising to me. Okay. Because, you know, it, that was still surprising. But, you know, she, there were quite a few things, you know, and not to give too much away, but... Because I want want to leave this for the audience to discover on their own. But what she did as a pioneering voice for women as a producer, I'll just leave it at that, was really surprising. And then some of the things, you know, one of the things in her personal life early on, which was 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 a great risk to her, I mean, life and death kind of risk, was also quite surprising. And... The other thing is, I think, Tommy, is that is the depths of her ability. You know, you learn in the you learn in the film that she's a she was a musical prodigy, and, and to use the word genius, which is such an overused word in our culture, sometimes is is complete act for her. That to me, even though I already knew her to be at this other level as a piano as a pianist. And also a singer was also surprising because we're not surprising, but truly remarkable. You know, this, this, she was really, again, at this rarefied level in her creativity, which leads me to the, the surprising thing, her ability to really mentor some of the great voices of our time from Donny Hathaway to, to Luther Vandross. Right. And then I would say, Peebo Bryson. Really? And Peebo Bryson. Well, yeah, exactly. Peebo Bryson. And uh, and then the countless of others that have influenced, that she's influenced. You know, her her fingerprints are on the work of thousands of artists. You know, there's the relationship with, that she has with Yoko Ono and John Lennon, which I won't give away in this interview either. That is <laughs> so really surprising and extremely beautiful. And, uh, and I think the, the, the other thing I, the the other, the other thing I would add is the depths of her 
advocacy, activism and advocacy were much deeper than I even realized. Mm. You know, her long standing relationship with Reverend Jesse Jackson and how fundamental she was in his career when he broke away from Martin Luther King's organization and then ran for and then all the way up to when he ran for president in the 1980s was also a surprise because. You know, this is the person that really put it all on the line in ways that people don't would never really think, you know, whatever stereotypical or cliche view they have of her, you know, it, it will be obliterated when you watch the movie, I think. How long you've been working on this film? So as I mentioned, Tommy, I met her probably in May or June of 2019. You know, by 20 by January 2020, we were we we started the film quite a bit. We, as a matter of fact, is we traveled with her to Los Angeles, where she received a Lifetime Achievement Award, Grammy. Yeah, but then the pandemic happened. Right. So the pandemic forced me to really change how I was making the movie. So it took me about, I would say, the painting is never done. Is this thing? You know, we're, we're we're still doing things sometimes. It seems like for the movie, but probably a good two and a half years, the project. There's a part in the film that completely took me by surprise and talk about moving is when or listen, we're listening to Roberta talk about the first time I ever saw your face and Clint Eastwood using it in the movie. And you mm-hmm. see the car going around the corner in Los Angeles on a cliff and the music in the background. I'm telling you, I, I almost lost my breath. I'm like, that was done brilliantly. Thank you. That Thank part you. of the film, I think people, when you, you'll see it, when you'll know it, when you listen to it and see it, what I'm talking about is it's going to move you. If it doesn't, then I have questions about yourself. <laughs> 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 what are the thoughts of Roberta on the finished product? So we had the good fortune, I have to say, to... You know, I I have to I have to say this too, Tommy. Roberta always had control of all her work, and she gave me complete. Uh, you know, I had final cut of the film. I had complete control. I, I I don't none of my films, all my films, I've had final cut on. You know, it's not worth it for me to do the work if I'm not able to have complete artistic control over the project. You know, it's, these are so hard to to pull off that if you have to compromise that, you know, then I should just go and make commercials. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can make quite quite a bit of money doing that. But, you know, for me, this is, you know, the path that I'm on. So we had organized a private screening for her when we when we got to the final cut. And, you know, one of our partners was Warner Media and they they're they're they, uh they are based at Hudson Yards here in New York City, and uh, they have beautiful screening rooms, brand new. And they were gracious enough to set up private screening in these, you know, you know, four, fifty foot screens. And and they asked her, her the, Roberta and her team asked if they could watch it privately without the without us, the filmmakers in the room, and and we agreed. And the response afterwards was. I can't share everything with you because some of it is is private, but I can tell you 
that it probably was the greatest experience I had as a, as a filmmaker to get the response that I did from her. She was, you know, moved, you know, to tears, to laughter, to joy. I mean, it was everything that you would hope for. She got to watch this story almost as as a story of someone else's life, but it was her, her life. And to have that response was, was affirming because what I'm interested in too, is that she has said to me, this is no longer, this is really, you know, this is something that we collaborate on together in a way, kind of like making a new record, but then it becomes completely yours, Anthony. No, that's what she said to me. This is, you know, this is, you know, you're an artist in your own right. You're going to, this is going to be yours. And so that's what it felt like. It felt like the starting point is her, the end, you know, there's no ending point. The middle point is me, you know, and the next point is you, Tommy, and the audience. And that's really exciting. That has to be the defining moment for you that you knew that it was better than you may have thought. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You had started off this, this discussion with left here. You have the hour and how I made it. And I realized now, which was, you know, a lot of really great questions, Tommy, in this interview. So I appreciate this. <laughs> I realized that I've done that with all my films in some way where there was this kind of, uh, you create with abandon. Because what else, what's the point? You might as well do it. Here, the film was so challenging to finish because of the pandemic and everything that we went through. Uh, you know, we, we, I, had, we had, I had personal tragedies in, in my life, people that died along the way, things like that, that were more intensified because of everything that we were living through together globally through the pandemic, that just finishing it felt like a main, like a, a, what an achievement just to finish it. This other stuff that's happened, you know, the reception at the premiere at, at, at New York's Doc NYC a couple of weeks ago, for example, this the stuff that, you know, that's happened it, it, with other press around the project is a beautiful happenstance, you know, even the discussion that we're having, because just to get it up to the top of the hill was what a journey. And then to have it be crowned by her response, you know, for me, it was already a victory in terms of, well, if, you know, what else can, what else can, you know, what else can we do here? Now it's, it's these, all these other lives to the film are happening. You mentioned the American master's life and it's going to be premiering in Europe and, you know, things like that. And that's really, really exciting. And the way it touched, for example, the way you've described how it touched you to me, that's really why we do all of this. Mm -hmm. And that also, I think, is something that resonated with Roberta, is that she made records that touched people. And now this film that I made is going to touch people. You know, and that continues this. What That's what it's about. We just continue this, this process, you know, which I think is a create like an evolutionary creative process. Now that it's completed, what is the first thought that comes to Antonino's mind when you hear the name Roberta Flack. Wow, that's really great. At one time, I would have said all the things you say, legendary, remarkable, genius. And I often, you know, the, the few, in some of the interviews that I've done, if you recall, Tommy, Buddy Williams, her drummer, there's so many charming voices in the film. 
the, her, her drummer has a has a, a part in the film that became a mantra for us. I would call up my producer, Mike Tyner. Uh, and, you know, everyone that worked on the film, Caitlin Stone, Mike Tyner, Kareem Lopez, the editor, they just, everyone just did next level work that really helped with this. I would call the team up and say, Roberta is a genius. And no one had to do with her, which is, is Buddy Williams' line in the film. And I would say that she's one of those rarefied artists that remains ever present for me, obviously in my life, but really in all our lives. Like we don't realize that when you attain that level of artistry, it is influencing, inspiring so much work that you have no idea about from Jay-Z to Adele to Lizzo. I mean, it's every, you know, it, she, in the film, we say Roberta was everywhere, but it, she is everywhere. And that, I learned something new too through her, which is what I think about with her, which is this idea of legacy really is kind of almost nonsense because le legacy is like a static thing in the past. Like really great work, Tommy. And it doesn't matter. You know, it can be a great performance by by an, uh, an athlete on the field. It could be a great record. It could be a great film, you know, a great book. Those things remain in the present and are always shaping the future. And I find that this project has, has does that for me. Like even in this conversation with you, it's very much about the present. But in some ways, the ideas that you and I are sharing are shaping the future. And that's because of this experience I had making Roberta. Roberta released January 24th on American Masters. Get yourself calendars marked and make sure you see the film. I know how most film directors' minds work. And you and I have become friends. So I think I can go here with you with this. Is mm -hmm. I know you're presenting and you're promoting Roberta. But what's next for Antonina? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny because that's exactly where my mind is. And you know, I'm getting asked that, they ask that question a lot. Well, I mean, you and I are going to, you know, have a few things in the works, you know, which will, you know, surprise some folks with hopefully soon. Because um, the, the, the podcast experience we had together was so, was so rewarding. And I think, and it, that also did touch people. So we have a few things cooking there, you and I. In terms of, I, I have a great docu-series in the works that um, that I'm really, really excited about and that we're getting going on that is focused on music. And I can't say too much more about that. But I have a great feature film in the works, mm. which, you know, I'll just say it's about a bus driver. <laughs> and the story is a true story. And it, it is remarkable. It is, it is also... It's one of those things that, you know, truth is stranger than fiction things. And I'm very, very excited about that. And that film is is going to be a narrative film. You know, we have um, some really great actors involved in the film already. So, uh, there, so I'm working on both of those at the same time. So hopefully at the end of 2023, that docuseries will be out in 2024. The, what we'll call the bus driver film will be out. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to see more of your work and do some more work with you. I, I always enjoy talking to you with you and, and collaborating with you. It's it's always an honor. Yeah, be, I feel it's, it's 100% mutual, Tommy. And so, you know, I can't wish you nothing but the highest form of success for what you're doing in this film. 
I want to thank you for coming back on, on the show and talking again. I mean, we could sit here for days and talk, but unfortunately there's other people that got their lives besides ours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me thank you, Tommy, for all the great work that you do. You know, the, the podcast is tremendous, but you know, to the listeners, you know, Tommy does a lot of great work as uh you know it's really advocacy in a in a in a in a in a in a big in a big way um and you know um, it's a it's a great privilege to know you to work with you and you know it's exciting that we're here together again it is listeners go to the show notes and make sure you click on the links for antonino's stuff that i'm going to put on there and also underneath the before the lights links we already talked about it once i'm going to put it on there again a podcast docu-series in support of Native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community entitled A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash, and the Making of Bitter Tears. That'll do it for this episode of Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin-chin. <laughs>